0: I always want to say thank you to, to Sunship for your continued support of Grace Church. Just to uh, remind you, in case you're not aware of it, that each month since we started, I believe you started about a year before we did, right? Uh, yes. And when we started in Philly, uh, your church decided to support us and has done that regularly, every month, faithfully. And we're thankful for that. If you find a more worthy, needy cause, uh, you're more than welcome to give it to someone else. But we're grateful for it. Thank you. God. And thankful for the friendship of your pastors. They love the word. And uh, they love the gospel. People say, you know, what, what what is it about Grace Church that, you know, how would you describe Grace Church? And I think you would describe sonship this way. Also, I would say, first of all, we have an extremely high view of Scripture as the Word of God. And then secondly, we have an extraordinarily high view of the Gospel, that we keep it elevated above everything else. So if you are interested in the Bible as God's Word, and the Gospel as the main thing, and the first and most important thing, uh, then you'll be at home in Grace Church, and I think you would be at home in Sonship also. I have been preaching the book of Galatians for about four months, and I had to say goodbye to it last week, but I picked it up again for you guys this week. Uh, it was hard to say goodbye to Galatians. It was like a, getting a good friend who traveled with you, And always pointed you to the cross and the sufficiency of Christ. Galatians, as you know, is about the gospel. And I like to define the gospel this way the gospel is what a sovereign, merciful, holy God has accomplished for sinners in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. In class sometimes, I will ask, in new members class, I will ask people to uh, define the gospel. And invariably, people will define it in some way that involves something that they have done. But the gospel is not anything about you. It's about what a sovereign, holy, and merciful God has accomplished for sinners in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's all about what God has done in Christ. That's the good news. You and I can never be the good news. We are too flawed. We fail too often. We are too imperfect. The good news is that God has done it in Christ. So Galatians is about the gospel. It's about... Setting forth some clear contrast between grace and the law, between faith and works, between self-righteousness and God's righteousness, between self-indulgence and being satisfied in God. It's a wonderful book. It should become a good friend of yours. The text I'm reading tonight is the end of the book. It's Paul's closing words. Listen to God's word tonight as I read out of Galatians chapter 6, verse 11 through 18. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted For the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Amen. Pray with me, please. Our gracious Father, we need over and over and over again to be reminded that in Christ is everything we need, that you have provided for us in the gospel not only that which makes us acceptable to you, but that which satisfies the deepest longing of our soul. We thank you for the gospel of Christ. May we not be ashamed of it. May we be like Paul, that we would not boast in anything except what you have accomplished for sinners in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Speak to us tonight probe our hearts, bring us to conviction and to a deeper love and gratitude for you. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. As you know, false teachers had come into the Church of Galatia, churches of Galatia, and they were simply saying that Christ is good, but not enough. You need more. If you really want the mark, of a true believer, of a true follower of Christ, you really want to be acceptable to God, then you must come under the Jewish law. And if you're a man, you must be circumcised as part of the Jewish law. So we have this thread of circumcision running through the book of Galatians as the identity mark of those who are really in with God. Of course, Paul's going to say it's not circumcision, it's faith in Jesus Christ that is the true mark of a believer. And the true mark of a believer is really deep within them. It's a heart that's been transformed by grace. It's nothing external. It's what God has done deep in your soul. That's what really identifies you. It's the spirit of God living in you, bearing witness with your spirit that you are a child of God. But they taught that this is the mark of a true believer, and Paul is arguing, no, it's faith in Christ, it's God's work of the Spirit that marks you out as his child. He now comes to the end after he has argued for grace and for faith and for God's righteousness and being satisfied in God. And now he wants to drive home this point. This is important, and we know it from what he says in verse 11. Because it seems like Paul reaches over and takes the pen out of the hand of his secretary. The technical term as we call them an amanuensis. Paul, as we understand it, as we glean some, Some things from the Bible appeared to have an eye problem, a vision problem that not only made it difficult for him to see, but apparently made him somewhat repulsive to look at at times. Perhaps it was oozing eyes, but he had an eye problem. And so most of his letters are written by secretaries dictated by him coming from God. But he reaches over now and takes the pen, and he says, See with what large letters I am writing to you. This is important. It's like you sitting at your computer and putting something in bold print, or in bold italic print, or in bold italics and underline or maybe you're even going to highlight it with a different color. This is important. I don't want you to miss out on this. That boasting in the cross, the glory of the cross, is what we should give our lives for. Note the contrast again in verses 12 and verse 14. In verse 12 he says it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Paul's saying the reason they want you to go through this is it diminishes the scandal of the cross. Because the scandal of the cross is you are not good. You can never be good enough for God. There's nothing that you can do or that anyone can do for you that can make you acceptable to God. But the Judaizers sort of water that down and say, no, if you submit to circumcision, if you live out the law, then there is something you can add add to it. But Paul says the only reason they add self-righteousness is because they want to avoid the scandal of the cross. In verse 14, he says, But far far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The title of my message is, The Glory and the Scandal of the Cross. There are those for whom the cross is a scandal. They avoid it. They run from it. They hide from it. They're ashamed of it. There are those for whom the cross is glory. They boast of it. We're either attracted to the cross or we are repulsed by it. We either boast of it or we shamefully avoid it. If we love Christ, we bear its reproach. If we fear men, we avoid the scandal. Of the cross. The hymn writer who wrote the old rugged cross captured the idea of glory and scandal. Many of you are familiar with these words. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. An emblem of suffering and shame, the scandal of the cross to many. But to the songwriter, I love that old rugged cross, though it be an emblem of suffering and shame. In the second verse he says, Oh, that old rugged cross, so despised By the world, has a wondrous attraction to me. For the dear Lamb of God left his glory above to bear it to dark Calvary. Despised, he says, by the world. It's a scandal. But to this songwriter, it has a wondrous attraction to me. And tonight, you are in one of those places. There's no neutral ground. The cross is a scandal that you avoid. You're shamed up. Oh, the cross has a wondrous attraction because on it, you see the Lamb of God dying for your sin, and you're overwhelmed by it. And you love that old, rugged cross. So tonight, out of our text, I want to answer the question more definitively, why is the cross of Jesus Christ an object of both glory and scandal? It is both at the same time, depending on who you are and where you are in your life. The cross is the cross. To some, a scandal. To others, It's a glory, a reason to boast. But why is this so? I think our text indicates three reasons. First of all, because of what it says about our self-righteousness. As I said earlier, the cross indicts us. The cross condemns us. The cross reminds us we aren't good enough. We can't ever be good enough. But if we come to Christ, we are more than good enough for God because we we gain his righteousness by faith. But the cross indicts our self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is simply self-righteousness. And the cross is all about God, what God does for sinners in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Self righteousness is about what I do. So the Judaizers are coming in and saying, if you really want to have an in with God, you really want to be right with God, then let us circumcise you. And so self righteousness does things or allows others to do things for them to make them more spiritual. I mean, many of you were maybe christened when you were young. Christened actually means the making of a Christian. So you were Christian. Somebody threw water on you or poured it or maybe dipped you, if you're Greek Orthodox. But can anyone but God... Make something of you that's acceptable to him. Is there anything I can do for you? Or anything you can do for yourself? Self-righteousness is simply self. And the irony, and Paul draws out that irony earlier in the book, he does it also in the, in the book of Philippians, that the Judaizers are so fo- focused on circumcision that this is the mark of a believer. Now, I don't don't need to develop that irony too much, but Paul sort of euphemistically talks about it in Philippians 3. When he's talking of the Judaizers, he says, their God is their belly, meaning this growing part of their body, and their glory is their shame. The part of your body is a man that you should not expose. This is circumcision. Is it really that mark of a believer? Earlier, Paul said in Galatians, he said, if you think that cutting off a piece of skin somehow makes you more acceptable to God, then keep cutting. Some would say he meant castrate yourself, if that's really. Is there anything you can do? Is there any masochistic act that you can perform? Is there any act of self-denial or sacrifice? What can you do to earn God's favor? The cross stands up and says, there is no other way if there could be. Then God's son wouldn't be hanging there, bleeding and bearing your sin. As he said earlier, if righteousness comes by the law, then Christ died for nothing, and God will not waste the death of His son for sinners by letting people who think they're good to get into heaven. There. Is no other way but Jesus but the cross the cross indicts our self-righteousness it indicts our desire for human boasting Paul says the only reason they want to do this is that they can boast in your flesh again ironical That they would boast in that, hey, we circumcised ten people today. Now they're right with God. But the point is, self-righteousness becomes a place for boasting. But Corinthians tells us, God chose the foolish things of this world and the weak things of this world. So that no man would boast in his presence but that he makes unto us Christ as our righteousness and our sanctification and our redemption. God has planned it in such a way that Jesus becomes everything and the cross is a scandal to anyone who wants to present themselves as deserving before God. The cross indicts our self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is only external. And the cross isn't about externalism. The cross isn't simply about changing your behavior. The cross is about changing you. We're good at externalism. Even as evangelical Christians, we get pretty skilled At externalism, and we soon forget what it is to have a heart that's repentant and broken before God and in need of grace. We know that we can go to church and we can sing and we can praise and we can testify and we can give, all of which we ought to do, but that is not. Christianity—that That is the effect of the gospel in our life. That is not the gospel. That is not the means of salvation. The gospel is about what God does for sinners and the person and work of Jesus Christ and how he affects our hearts with that gospel transforming us. The cross indicts our externalism, our self-righteous externalism. It indicts our hypocrisy. Self-righteousness often justifies and excuses sin in one area because I'm good in another area. Paul says even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. They simply say, we have this mark of a believer. And so they boast in one thing and diminish their failure in other things. And self-righteous people have to do that. They have to excuse or minimize sin in their life because they want to be portrayed as good and righteous, but they know they're not. They know they've done some good things, they've practiced some good deeds, but they also know the depths of their own heart. And so they hide their sin. Well, the cross indicts hypocrisy because it cuts deep to the heart. The cross is a scandal to the self-righteous very simply because it declares that regardless of how good you may think you are or how much good you have done, God says you are bad and so bad that the only way you can be forgiven is if God himself rescues you and the only way God can rescue you is for God to become man and for God to bear your sin and for God the Son to bleed and die a death on the cross that you deserve. The cross indicts self-righteousness and so it is a scandal to do-gooders. That's why liberal churches early in the 20th century went through their hymn books and took out songs about the blood. They didn't want to talk about the cross, about this atoning work of Jesus Christ because it indicts our sense of goodness. And there's something within us that Tells us we can be good enough. We can make life and find life on our own. And the cross stands there declaring, No, you can never be good enough. But don't worry about it. Because God can make you more than good enough for Him through the death and resurrection of His Son. The cross is a scandal to the self righteous. But it's a reason to boast. To glory, as the King James says. A reason to boast for those who know they're not righteous. I stand beneath the cross exposed to the depth and darkness of my evil and my sin. And I see on that cross someone dying as the Lamb of God, the death that I deserve. And I glory in that because I know and I own my sin. But if you don't own your sin and know your sin and confess your sin and live with a heart of repentance for your sin, then you won't boast in the cross because the cross reminds us God did this because you so desperately needed it. The cross is an object of both glory and scandal. It's a scandal because it indicts our self-righteousness. Secondly, because of what the cross says about the world. Again, Paul's famous words. The, the cross by which the world is crucified to me and I am crucified to the world. By world, Paul means unredeemed creation. What is the world? He's not simply talking about the material universe. He's talking about everything that exists outside of the rule of Jesus Christ. Unredeemed creation. It's people and places and things and systems and ideas that all reject the Lordship of Christ. It's unredeemed creation. Or as one author said, it's everything outside of Christ in which man seeks his glory and puts his trust. If you don't know Jesus, then you look at the world as a God, as having some power to give you what you desire in life, whether it's significance or happiness or security. You look at the world as having the means to make you what you want to be, give you that peace, that hope, that that joy that you're missing in life. And by world it can, it can just as well be a world of religious activity. Or it can be a world of self-indulgence. It is that entire sphere that is apart from the rule of Christ. And the cross is a scandal to those who love the world. Because the world is my life. I mean, I need to go places, I need to have things, I need to experience, I need to have this relationship, I need this money, I must have this job, if I will be happy in life, I need this. And so we love the world because we believe that it has something to meet our deepest longings and our desires. But Paul says, when I look at the cross of Jesus Christ, the world is crucified to me. The world's nothing but a corpse. It has no life or power to offer me. A few weeks ago, I sat in a a police chaplain's meeting in Philadelphia And the uh, officer that was standing in for the captain that day uh, strikingly began asking for prayer. And uh, he shared his heart almost with tears. And he said in so many words that for the past few months he's really been struggling with depression. He needs prayer. Would you pray for me? He said, my dog died. I had this dog for 14 years and my dog was my life. His exact words. And he talked a little bit more and then he came back again and he said, my dog was my life. Now, I don't want to diminish or demean him in any way because my heart went out to him. I think it's sad when anything or anyone but Jesus becomes your life. I mean, I love dogs. Our kids all grew up with Doberman pinchers. A real dog. <laughs> and it was a sad day when I had to take him to a vet after having lived with us for many years and have him put to sleep. That was a sad day. But Sam wasn't my life. Life went on in Jesus. What is of true and ultimate value went on. The unfortunate thing is that when you make anything outside of Jesus your life, you are destined for disappointment and despair. It doesn't matter what it is. Nothing less. John said, don't love the world, neither the things that are in the world, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father but is of the world, and the world passes, literally is passing away, and the lusts for it. It's all going to be gone. What the cross does is that it rescues you from being in love with a corpse that will ultimately leave you disappointed. Doesn't matter what it is, it won't last as good as it may be. And you may have those moments in life where you say, life is really good right now. But it won't always be that way if that life is anything but Jesus because everything else rots, decays, or dies. When I was 18 years old, I was working, had a little bit of money, wanted my first car. So I went and shopped around and found uh, either a 58 or 59, or six, 58 or 59 Corvette, red and white, convertible, four on the floor, white seats, leather seats. I wanted that car badly. So I put money down on it. And I went home and I said, Mom, I put money down on this car, would you uh, sign for it? She said, What kind of car? I told her, she said, There's nine people in this family. You're not buying a car that seats two. (laughs) So, change of plans, I went back and I found a 1968 Chevelle Supersport. Canary yellow, black top, (laughs) mag wheels, fat tires, dual exhausts, four on the floor. Bucket seats. Man, could I burn rubber in that thing. And in Feltonville in North Philly, I was hot stuff. I had this hot car. It was a, a chick magnet. <laughs> <laughs> but when you get a chick with a chick magnet, it doesn't last. Where's that car today, that car that boosted my ego and made me something? Well, I figure it's either a pile of rust in some junkyard or somebody bought it and restored it. Out of curiosity, I researched what could I buy that 68 Chevelle for if I bought it today? Fully restored, about $60,000. But you know, even if you put all that money into it, it's still going to rot. It's still going to decay. It will be gone. So Paul says the cross has made the world a corpse to me, it's dead. It has nothing to offer me when it comes to real life. Now, that doesn't mean that you couldn't have nice things or enjoy nice things in the world. You just realize they're dead. I ride a Harley, but it's dead. If I I didn't have the Harley, my life would not change at all. My life in Jesus Christ. I enjoy it, but it does not change. Make me who I am. It is not my identity, my security, my significance. It is not life. It's dead. It may be useful, but it's dead. That's what the cross does to stuff. But Paul says not only is the world dead by the cross. He says, I am crucified. That within me something has died. That attraction, that desire. When you look at the cross, if we could but keep our eyes fixed on the cross of Jesus Christ, then we would not be attracted to the lies of the world that says you can find what you're looking for out here. Because that's what marketing is all about. Marketing is all about telling you what you need to be happy, to fit in, what you need to wear, what you need to smell like, how you need to look, who you need to follow, what music you need to listen to, what sport team you should be a a fan of, if you really want to be someone to fit in. The marketing is out there to tell you if you can just buy this or have this or do this you will have life but it's a lie. And the cross of Jesus Christ delivers us from those seductive lies because if I fix my heart and eyes on the cross I see the world as simply a corpse. And in my own heart there's a deadness. It's not what I want because it's the cross that has a wondrous attraction to me. The cross is scandalous to those who love the world. If the world is your life, then you will run from the cross because the cross says the world is dead. It has no life. Recently, I guess within the last couple weeks, we have all heard a lot about the The Life and Death of Robin Williams. I was uh, curious as I read on Facebook the comments of Christians as they thought about his life. Curious and sad at the same time because uh, most Christians were more concerned about how funny he was or you know, what good movie he made or, you know, what good lines he had here, remembering him for, for that. I didn't find too many people concerned about his soul. Too late then, he's gone. But not much interest in where he was spiritually, but as you look at the life of Robin Williams, I would say that, you should remember Robin Williams as a portrait of a life that lives and dies without Jesus. A life that may be filled with fun and laughter on the outside, but is tortured on the inside. A life that lives with an annoying underlying sadness that won't go away, and that ends in a tragic death. So Robin Williams for me is sort of the poster child for life without Jesus. If you want to know what it is to live without Jesus Christ and die without Jesus Christ, take a good look at Robin Williams. A life that seems so full yet was empty. And by the way, I may be talking about you this evening. A life which crowds acclaimed, yet lived in loneliness. A life that appeared to have mastered his art and his world, yet lived enslaved to drug addiction. A life that seemed to be alive, yet chose a gruesome and ugly and horrible suicidal death. We're good at faking it. But the reality is we do have to live with ourselves. Doesn't matter what image we portray to others or what others think of us. If you're not in Christ, there's something going on deep in your soul. There is that gnawing sadness, that loneliness, that dissatisfaction. It's there. It's real. And nothing in this world is going to take it away. But the cross tells us that no matter how empty your life is, In Jesus Christ, there is an inexhaustible hope. No matter how lonely you may become, in Jesus Christ, you will find a friend who will never leave you nor forsake you. No matter how much you have struggled and failed in life, you will find that there is always a fountain filled with blood that offers forgiveness and restoration and there's unconditional love that comes from your Father. And no matter how deep you may sink into despair, there is one who rose from the dead, who conquered death and Satan and sin, and if you'll let him, he'll take you by the hands, he'll take you by your heart, and lift you back up again and give you real life. Because when you die to the world and the world dies to you, you find a life in Jesus that never, ever dies. It's the only life that never dies. The cross indicts our self-righteousness The cross declares the world to be nothing but a corpse. The cross has a lot also thirdly to say about our identity. What really matters about who I am? Verse 15, Paul said, neither circumcision counts for anything, but nor does uncircumcision There's nothing you can boast about what you do or what you don't do. This doesn't make you something before God. I'm circumcised so God accepts me. No, I'm not doing circumcision. That's the law. So because I don't do it, God accepts me. No, again, there's nothing you do or don't do that has anything to do with your identity before God. Paul simply says, it counts for nothing. What counts, he says, is a new creation. What counts is what God does for you in Christ, because what God does for you in Christ is he makes you a part of Jesus' eternal family instead of just a part of Adam's family that is destined for death and destruction. Because if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. This is who we are. We belong to a new world, a new family, the family of God. My identity is God has made me new in Christ, and that's all that matters. Any other identity that someone may create for you, you can get the Botox, the facelifts, you you, you can get, be recreated a hundred times. Paul says it means nothing. Nothing at all. We live in a society of recreating identities, people trying to find out who am I? Well, apart from Christ, you're a sinner in desperate need of grace and on a futile search for happiness, you will never find it. That's who you are. Doesn't matter what you do, doesn't matter how you change your identity whether you become self-righteous or self-indulgent, you will not find what your soul craves until you come to Jesus Christ, until God makes you his new creation. This is what counts. And if you know this, Paul says, if this is the rule of your life, that what really counts is what God has done for me in Christ. Then you live with peace and mercy upon you. Then you live knowing that you are the true people of God, the true Israel of God. You are the ones, not... Not those who have submitted to circumcision in the flesh in order to make themselves acceptable to God. No, the true Israel of God is the, are the ones whom God makes new through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul is serious about what he said. He's not just bloviating. He's not just talking. We are good talkers. But listen to what he says. He says, from now on, let no one cause me trouble. For I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. That is, if Jesus were here, He would be bearing these marks. I bear them because I have so identified with the cross, the scandal of the cross, the glory of the cross. I have so identified with the cross that I suffer for it. It means that much to me. What's it mean to you? We've heard a lot about ISIS in the past few months that group of radical Muslims in Syria and Iraq. We know that they've infiltrated mosques, you know, less radical mosques, but they've infiltrated them, taken over their loudspeaker systems in cities. And they've announced in city after city, if you're a Christian, you must convert to Islam, pay a fine, Or die. And so we know that Christians are being driven out of Iraq, but not just driven out. They're they're dying. Not everybody can run. The elderly, the disabled, the infirmed, the weak, left behind, and you find them beheaded on the streets of Iraqi cities. For what? For the cross of Jesus Christ. There's something about it when you grasp it. There's something about what happened that day that Jesus died for sinners. That when God does a work in my heart that helps me to see... That he died for me. This glory of the cross, though despised by the world, has a wondrous attraction for me. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. Where will you live? Avoiding the scandal of the cross? Or with a heart broken before God and humbled before God, seeing the wondrous attraction of the cross? That old camp song that we used to sing, I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. The world Behind me, the cross before me, the world behind me, the cross before me, the world behind me, the cross before me. No turning back, no turning back. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, though it hurts, though it's painful at times, to look at the cross and have it indict our self righteousness though it's painful to look at the cross and know that it condemns the false lies and promises that the world offers us though it hurts we thank you for that pain of conviction that shows us our deep need of your grace and i pray tonight if there is someone here <coughs> that needs to taste your grace. A Robin Williams, who may be on the outside, seems to have it all together, but on the inside is on the brink of death. God, save someone tonight, I pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.